You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Uh, we have a very special guest tonight. Dr. Timothy George is a church member here at Shades. He's also the founding and current dean of Beeson Divinity School. I went to Beeson. My wife went to Beeson. Several of our staff members went to Beeson. And we would love for you to go to Beeson. This is just a long, elaborate recruiting pitch tonight. Um, uh, Dr. George, his wife is Denise. His children are Christian and Alice, uh, both adults uh, and married. Uh, and Dr. George is going to speak to us on the Reformation tonight. If ever, I know you guys thought when I spoke the last two weeks on humor, you thought it doesn't get more expert than Jacob and humor. However, that said, thank you, Suzanne, for the one laugh. I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. George is a premier expert on the Reformation, and we will hear him gladly. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and for how you are using the church to instruct us and to teach us, to remind us of your truth. We pray for our time tonight as Dr. George leads us that we would hear about the history of our church and also uh, how you are using the church for your glory. Uh, we hear, want to hear from you, so we invite your Holy Spirit here. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dr. Jordan. Shall I just stay here? Well, hello, everybody. Is that loud enough? Okay. Um, well, Jacob and Suzanne are two of my favorite people. Just great, great students and ministers. And, you know, this building is special to me because when I moved to Birmingham in 1988, before half of you were born, uh, this was our church, this, this building. This is where we had all of our services. I remember we got up to three or four in here on a Sunday. And uh, so I have a lot of great memories about those services we used to have here. And what I think, do we still call this Miller Chapel? What do we call this now? The Conference Center? Anyway, this used to be our church. Take, take my word for it. And God has blessed this church a lot since 1988. And we see the evidence of that all over this mountain. And in you uh, who've come tonight. Uh, and next week, I hope you'll come back to talk about the Reformation. Now, I want to say a couple of preliminary remarks before I get really started. First of all, uh, why the Reformation? Well, this is a very good time to talk about the Reformation. Next year, 2017, will be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, the event which triggered, or at least symbolically began, the movement we call the Reformation. And uh, so there are lots of festivities and celebrations going on. And one of the things I'm involved with this coming summer, 2017, is a Reformation Heritage Tour. A couple of you have already asked me about that. And there is somewhere of passing around a little sheet. If you're interested in that or want more information about that, if you'll just put your name and email on there, I will send you all the information you need to know about the Reformation Heritage Tour. It's the end of June, the 1st of July, basically the last week in June, the first week in July this coming summer. We're going to visit Wittenberg. We're going to also go to Switzerland. There's a lot of Reformation that took place there in Switzerland, the most beautiful country in the world. I lived there for one year. We're going to visit all those places. And I'm doing this with my very good friend, Dr. David Dockery. Some of you know him. He's from Birmingham originally. He's now the president of a seminary in Chicagoland. So he and I are doing this together, and we'd love for you to come and join us. Now, uh, 
also, I think Jacob asked me to, to list some books. And I think we sent that in. I don't know if you got it in time or not. So it'll be somewhere around there. There they are. Stephen Nichols. How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World. That's a great little book. It's, it's a short book. It's not a very detailed book. It leaves out a lot. But it is a great introduction to the Reformation for somebody that doesn't know anything about it. So I recommend that, Stephen Nichols. And then I have a book, I brought a copy of it here called Theology of the Reformers. It's a little deeper, but not too deep for any of you good students. And uh, if you'd like to, to look at that, particularly what the Reformers believed and why it matters, uh, Theology of the Reformers. I wrote that, by the way, out of the first edition in 1988, the very year I moved to Birmingham when Beeson Divinity School was begun. It's now been updated in a 25th anniversary revised edition. I've also written a book since then called Reading Scripture with the Reformers from InterVarsity Press. It's a little shorter, a little more focused on the Bible and the Reformation, why the Bible was such a big deal in the Reformation and what that means to us today who still love the Bible and believe the Bible and want to follow its teachings. We'll talk about some of that tonight and next week, but I want to give you those resources. Now, because this is on the Reformation, I think we ought to begin with listening to the Bible. I'm going to read two verses of Scripture, and then I want to tell you my general plan of these two lessons together. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul's letter to the Romans. This is one of the great texts of the Reformation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but at certain moments in the history of God's people through the ages, certain passages of Scripture, certain verses, even certain books have spoken in a powerful way to that particular moment. Well, this was the case with Romans and the Reformation, especially with Martin Luther. Tonight's talk is going to focus mostly on Martin Luther. Next week, we're going to say about the other reformers and what happened after Luther and how the Reformation still impacts us today. Because it's not just a historical event back then and there in the 16th century, but it's a movement that began and continues today to have effects all around the world. These two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. That word power, by the way, in Greek is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. The power, the dynamite of the gospel. For the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God, that's a key phrase, we'll come back to that. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, and here Paul quotes an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 7. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Or as the King James Version, which I grew up on, says, the just shall live by faith. Well, that becomes the great verse of the Reformation, especially verse 17. For in, the righteous, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous, the just, will live by faith. So get back in your space capsule and go in your time machine back in history, back a long time ago, almost 500 years ago, even go back a little bit beyond 500 years ago, 
And I want to talk about Luther and the Reformation in terms of some objects that you can visualize and remember and kind of put some pegs around certain events that happen related to these objects. The first one is a thunderstorm. I'm going to talk about a thunderstorm. And, and then the second one uh, is, is an altar, an altar, where the mass, the Catholic mass was said. Uh, the third one is a, a door. You can guess what that is. The door at Wittenberg where Luther posted his 95 Theses. I want to talk about a door. I left out maybe the most important one of all, and that is a book, the Bible. I'm going to get it in there. And then the last one is a deathbed. So if I, if I don't forget those, you, rem, you can remind me. Some of you wrote them down. So we're going to start with the thunderstorm. Then we'll go to the altar. Then we'll go to the book. Then we'll go to the door. And we'll end up on a deathbed. And so I want to do this. And then I think, uh, Jacob, did you tell me we have some time for Q&A? So uh, I need somebody's watch to tell me the time. Because otherwise I'll go on for all night. And you don't want that. Who has a watch? You'll loan to me. I don't wear a watch. But I need to know. Will you let me borrow your watch? Okay. Please remind me to give it back to you. I have stolen many watches just like this. <laughs> you know, I don't wear a watch. I don't believe in watches, actually. I don't carry time on my body. But, you know, it's a great way to witness to people on the airplane. You don't have a watch. You say, what time do you have? What time is it? And it starts a conversation. So I'll, I'll give this back to you. I'm supposed to go for 40 minutes or so? Something like that. Okay. So, the thunderstorm. Martin Luther was born in a town called Eisleben, which, by the way, we'll go to next summer on our tour, Eisleben. It's, it's in a part of Germany called Saxony. And here he was born the son of a, of a miner, but not just a, the lowest a kind of a miner right in the pits, but a miner who had become an entrepreneur. His, his father was a businessman and uh, occupied a position of not great, great wealth and nobility, but he was, we, we'd probably call him middle, upper middle class. He was doing pretty well. Enough to send his son to the University of Erfurt. That's where Luther enrolled as a student. And his father and mother both wanted him to be a lawyer. And that's because then as now, lawyers make more money than preachers. That's generally true. Lawyers do pretty well. And so they wanted their son to make a lot of money in the field of law so that they could be supported in their old age and not have to worry about things. That's what their dream was for him. He was bright. He was precocious. Off he went to the University of Erfurt to study law. And he was doing fine, doing great, until it was spring break and he was coming back home by himself in the fields walking from Erfurt back to his hometown of Eisleben, and suddenly a thunderstorm arose and he was struck down in a thunderstorm. He thought he was going to die. He cried out in a panic, St. Anna, help me, I'll become a monk. Now, I wonder if anybody here, you get an A for this question, knows who St. Anna was. Who was St. Anna? Any guesses? You ever heard of her? She was Jesus' grandmother. Yeah, she was the mother of the Virgin Mary. And in that part of Germany, and especially among the miners, there was a special devotion to St. Anna. Everybody knew St. Anna. And, of course, uh, Luther, as a little boy growing up in that environment, had seen statuettes of St. Anna in his home from the time he was a small boy. And there in the, 
thunderstorm, thinking he was going to die. It was an act of impulse, probably as much as anything else. But he cried out, St. Anna, help me, save me. I'll become a monk. Now, it was a vow he had made under duress, though. And nobody was expected to fulfill a vow that you made like that. And Luther said, I've got to go through with it. I'm going to fulfill this vow and actually become a monk. Everybody was against it, especially his father. You're going to throw away your life in the monastery. You can make something of yourself if you became a lawyer, a counselor to the prince or the emperor. But Luther said, I've got to fulfill this vow. What if I had actually died in the thunderstorm? What would have happened to me then? How would I have appeared before God? How would I know that God was for me, not against me? And so he became a monk. How can I find a gracious God? That was the question that burned deep into his heart. So he went to the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, the same town where he had been studying law in the university. And he became a novice, that's a first-year monk, in the Augustinian monastery. By the way, you can still see that monastery today. It has not been destroyed, unlike so much in Germany that was destroyed in World War II. This monastery was not bombed, and it's still standing today. You can actually see the very cell where Martin Luther entered and stayed for six years as a young monk. We'll go there next summer. Well, in this thunderstorm, he becomes a monk. Not just a regular monk, but a a scrupulous monk. Later on, he looked back on this and he said, you know... If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Uh, And so he would fast, go without food, days on end, until he was famished with hunger. He He would sleep on the stone floor of his monastic cell in the wintertime without a blanket. And the cold, howling wind driving into the open windows. He was shivering to the bone, freezing to death. And... He would take a whip and lacerate his back until it was a bloody pulp. But he was always asking himself, am I hungry enough? Am I cold enough? Have I suffered enough? Is there ever any enough that can satisfy God and please God? What can I do to be right with God, to be righteous? That word in Romans, righteous with God. Well, he tried out... All of these disciplines, none of them seemed to work. He was always burdened deep with his sins. He, he was blessed, though, because he had a very wise and patient confessor, his mentor. His name was Johann von Staupitz, and he would go to Staupitz and confess all of his sins, pour them all out in confession. You're supposed to name every sin you've committed. So he would pour them all out and walk away, think of something he had forgotten, come right back in, start the whole process over And Staupitz got tired of this and said, listen here, Brother Martin, if you're going to come in here and confess so much, why don't you go out and do something big, really worth confessing? Kill somebody. Commit some big sin. Don't just come in here with these little dolly sins. But you see, Luther's problem was not whether they were big sins or little sins. His problem was, have I confessed every sin? Is the slate completely clean? And if not, how can God be pleased with me? Well, uh, this routine of confession over and over again did not bring relief to the deepest hungers of his soul. What if he had forgotten some sin to confess? What, what about the sins he committed when he was asleep? Did you ever think about that? Sins you commit in your sleep? Uh, Luther 
anticipated Sigmund Freud by more than 400 years by realizing that the human being is a complex personality. There's our conscious mind and then there's all that stuff that's beneath the conscious. Freud talked about it in different ways and it's still very much a part of our way of thinking about what human beings are and the deep, dark drives that are inside each of us. What about those? How can I know they have been cleansed, that I am inside out, top to bottom, right with God? Well, a big deal in the monastery is when a monk uh, becomes a priest. And when I started studying this years ago, I didn't know any different. I, I wasn't brought up a Catholic. I was brought up a good old-fashioned Southern Baptist, and nobody ever told me. I just sort of always assumed that all monks were priests. What's the difference? But they're not. Monasticism was actually begun as a lay movement. It wasn't priests at all. It was lay people who wanted to give their life to God and live in solitude and pray all the time. That's, that's monasticism. But within the monastery, some of the monks do become priests. And that means that they can consecrate the elements of communion, what they call the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, and have a very special role in forgiving sins and so forth. Well, Luther became a priest and this was a big deal. It was, uh, it was kind of like graduating from college or high school or something. It's a big deal for your whole family and everybody comes. You get gifts and there are parties. Well, his father decided that he would go and celebrate with his recalcitrant son this great event in his life when he became a priest. Even though he had never wanted his son to enter the monastery in the first place. He would do the right thing. He would go. He would bring a gift. You know, he would, he would do all that. And so his father's name was Hans Luther came. And he was there as Luther stood at the altar. Here's the second object, the altar. And made it through that part of the mass where the priest is supposed to say, Vero vivo eterno Deo to the true, the living, the eternal God. And Luther was overcome with a, almost a seizure. He could barely hold himself upright at the altar as he said the words, to the true, the living, the eternal God. Who am I, Luther said? Pygmy and ashes that I should say this to the true, the living, the eternal God. The God who made the world out of nothing. The God who could strike me down at a moment's notice and has every reason to do so. Who am I to say this? But he, he hung in there. He made it through the full canon of the mass, it's called. And when it was over, he came down. There was a big banquet and he sat next to his father at the table. And we're going to have a nice meal. His father, it was just at about the point he had had all he could take. And... So Luther asked him this question, Father, are you, are you still sorry that I have become a monk? That was too much. His, his father flared up, you wise fool, you're throwing away your life here in the monastery, leaving your mother and me with nothing to fend for ourselves in our old age. Oh, but Father, don't you remember in that thunderstorm, I was called by a heavenly vision, St. Anna. Eh, said his father. That's how you say it in German. Eh! Say his father. God grant it wasn't the devil. 
He had touched a very sensitive nerve. Was it God who called Luther in the thunderstorm? Or was it maybe the fiend of hell? Satan, the devil. There was a story circulating in Germany in Luther's day. No doubt he heard it as a, as a young boy. It was a story about Martin of Tours, St. Martin of Tours, after whom Martin Luther was named because he was baptized on St. Martin's Day, November the 11th. And the story was this. Once upon a time, Satan appeared to St. Martin of Tours. And he appeared, though, as Christ. Glorious, brilliant, the living, risen, ascended Christ appeared in a vision to St. Martin of Tours. And he, he, it was really the devil, but he looked like Christ. And Martin of Tours thought it was Christ. And he fell down prostrate before him, began to worship and adore. And then he looked up into the visage of this apparition. And he asked a question. He said... Where are the nail prints? There were none. And as soon as Martin of Tours asked that question, the apparition vanished. And he knew this was not Jesus Christ. It was a counterfeit. It was the devil disguised as Christ. Doesn't St. Paul say that sometimes the devil appears as an angel of light? Yeah. Where are the nail prints? That question would haunt Martin Luther really for the rest of his life. And he would continue to wrestle with the devil. Even after he became fully committed to Jesus Christ and the gospel, the devil never would leave him alone. That's a part of the Martin Luther story. And uh, next summer on our tour, another place we're going to visit is the Vartborg Castle which is a great fortress on the edge of the, the Thuringian forest. And there you'll see the place where Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. And it was said at a certain point in that work of translating the Bible, uh, the devil began to agitate against Luther and pester him and mock him. And uh, Luther took an inkwell and hurled it at the devil. They still show you the ink on the wall. I think they refresh it every now and then, just a tourist, you know, but make it seem authentic. But it's there. I mean, that really, I actually think it was, an, it's not probably Luther that threw the inkwell at the devil, but I think it was probably the devil that threw the inkwell at Luther. He was so infuriated at what he was doing. Anyway, I got sidetracked there, but that's an interesting story, isn't it, about the inkwell. I should have put that, that's another object, the inkwell. But, but we go back to the, the altar. He's trembling. He barely hangs in there. And he asks, Father encounters him. And he asks him this question, where are the nail prints? You know, and that's a good question for you to ask yourself and for all of us to ask ourselves these days. Where are the nail prints? Every ministry, every preacher, every book uh, that you encounter that claims to be giving you the genuine, authentic message of Jesus Christ? Where are the nail prints? Well, let's get to the book. Luther was still troubled, still bothered about all of this. Went to Staupitz, and Staupitz said, man, you're making this too hard. You know, Staupitz said to him what 
any wise counselor or pastor or just really good Christian friend would say to somebody else, what you would say to one of your friends if they were trouble like Luther, you would say something like this, just what Stauffit said to Luther, man, you're making this too hard. All this confession, all this remembering, all this stuff. You're making it too hard. All you've got to do is just love God. We'd say something like that. Love God, said Luther. I hate him. This was blasphemy to say that you actually hated God. Staupitz didn't know what to do with him. Ich verstehe nicht. He said, I don't understand this fellow. And now Luther was cast into the very abyss of desperation and despair. And he said, how could it be not even Johann von Staupitz, my mentor, my father in God, really understands me? Am I the only one that's ever been plagued like this? Am I the only one that has these deep, dark troubles? Well, Staupitz was a very wise man. No doubt about it. And he had probably encountered people like Luther before in his life. And so one day he was sitting with Luther underneath a pear tree in the garden of the monastery where they were living. He put his arm around Luther's shoulder and said, Listen here, Brother Martin, I've been thinking about you. I think you ought to go over there to the University of Wittenberg and get a doctorate in Scripture. And become a professor in the seminary. Now here's a young man on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And his mentor says you ought to become a theological professor. Oh no, said Luther. I could never do that. That would kill me. Well, said Staupitz, if it kills you, that's all right. God has lots of things for clever people like you to do in heaven. See? But he had to do what he was told. He had taken a vow of obedience, of chastity and poverty. He had to do what he was told. So he did. He began to study the Bible. And eventually he earned a doctorate in the Bible. Dr. Martin Luther he became in 1512. And this study of the Bible changed his life. And really made the whole Reformation possible. He, he studied the Psalms. He had read the Psalter many, many times, memorized it. That's what monks do. They just chant the Psalms over and over again. Well, he had done that. He knew the Psalms, but now he read them with a new intensity. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever read the Bible? You kind of know it. Maybe you've even taught Sunday school or some other group, Bible study at home. But you know the Bible. But then you come back to it with different questions. You spend more time slowly in it, learning it, letting it speak to you. This is what happened to Martin Luther. He came to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had read that many times. He knew it well. But now it hit him. These are the very words Jesus had spoken on the cross. My God, my God, why? That's the very question I have asked a thousand times, Luther said. Jesus felt forsaken. I thought I was the only one. How could it be? He was the sinless son of God. I'm a sinner. Well, he realized that 
on that cross, Jesus Christ had so identified himself with me, with, with our, my, lost condition, that he felt himself on our side, crying out in the darkness of Calvary. The very question I have asked a thousand times, my God, my God, why? And then he came to this verse, this text that we began with. Romans chapter 1. This was a hard nut to crack. And again, it's not like he's reading this for the first or second time. He had read it many, many times. And he stumbled every time he read it over this expression, the righteousness of God. In Greek, dikaosune theou. The righteousness of God. What is that? Luther had always interpreted that phrase Paul uses in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God, to refer to the righteousness by which God, who is holy and just, punishes the unrighteous, the sinner. It was this God that Luther could not love, but rather hated and murmured against in his heart. Some of you may have been to Rome. You've seen the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo. It's beautiful, world-famous painting. There in the Sistine Chapel sits Christ on a rainbow. As Michelangelo painted him. A judge with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's condemning, consigning men and women, sheep and goats to his right and to his left, to heaven, to hell. That's how Luther saw Christ, the judge sitting on a rainbow. That's how he pictured God, a God of wrath, of anger, of judgment, before whom no one could stand. The righteousness of God bothered him because he knew everything he had done to make himself righteous before God had utterly failed. He came to see deep inside that he really was lost. He had no hope. No leg to stand on. The more he pondered this text, it came to him, he said, that the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about in Romans 1.17 is the righteousness by which God, without compromising his holiness. Don't leave that out. That's what liberalism, theological liberalism does. It leaves out the holiness of God. So you talk about a lot about the love of God, but not much about the holiness of God don't leave out the holiness of God Luther said the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about here is the righteousness by which God without compromising his holiness declares the sinner to be righteous because of Jesus Christ and what he has once and for all done in his death on the cross and paying the penalty for our sins That we owed but could not pay. Jesus Christ has taken that upon himself. He is our substitute. And once Luther realized this. Once this hit him with the full force of an atomic bomb. He said it was as though I had passed from the deepest midnight into the brilliance of the noonday sun. He said, it was as if the gates of paradise had opened and I had entered right in. It was as if, he said, it was as if I had been born 
again. Use that phrase. Born again. And this is the first fundamental fact about the Reformation that I want to talk about. I want to present to you tonight. This being declared righteous before a holy God on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he has once and for all done. And Luther described this teaching, this doctrine, as the doctrine of justification by faith. And it is the fundamental cardinal teaching of the whole Protestant Reformation. Everything else that follows, everything I'm going to say tonight, everything you'll ever read about that followed about the Reformation, stems from this one fundamental fact that God is gracious to us and declares us righteous, forgiven. Not on the basis of what we have done, our good works, our achievements, our merits, but on the basis only of what Jesus Christ has done. Well, how does that apply to us? How does that become a reality in our lives? Here, Luther becomes a creative theologian because he said we are justified by faith and then he added, he added two words. He got in trouble for this. The Catholic Church blasted him. A lot of other people blasted him. He said, we are justified by faith alone. He added that word, alone. Allein in German. It's not in the Greek text of, of Romans. He added it. Why did he add it? Was he trying to add something to the gospel message? No, not at all. He said, we have to say we're justified by faith alone in order to make clear what Paul does teach in Romans, that we're justified, as Paul puts it, without the works of the law, alone in that sense, without anything we can bring to the bargain, by the sheer mercy of God, alone, alone. Some people say to me, well, this, this teaching about justification by faith alone, it's, it's pretty old-fashioned. It's kind of antiquated. It's obscure that uh, we don't talk that way anymore, do we? Justification, it's a big, long word. got an A-T-I-O-N on it. Asian, we don't speak in Asian words very much. Well, it may be true that that's not a part of our common everyday vocabulary so much anymore. But the reality behind it very much is. Because the deepest problem that every human being faces is this. We want somebody to tell us that we're justified. That we're okay. That at the end of the day, when our life is brought up in the balance and we stand before a holy and righteous God that he will say, you can enter into my presence in heaven forever. We, we desperately want that and need that. And deep within the human relation problems we have with one another is the same issue. Justification. And Luther realized that this is a gift. It cannot be earned or merited or achieved, but only received and believed by faith alone. 
That's the first thing. Now, the second point I want to mention about the Reformation is how this happened. I've already said Luther was a monk. He became a doctor of Bible. He became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And in that sense, the Reformation began as an academic matter. I mean, Luther was giving lectures on Romans when he really came to this deep insight into the nature of gracious character and nature of God. He was trying to revise the curriculum. You can't think of anything more academic than that. That's what was happening. When all of a sudden, this became a famous cause celeb throughout Europe. So it was through the Bible, through Luther's reading and studying of the Bible, that this fundamental insight into the gracious character of God became clear to him and through him to many others, to the other reformers. And so another great event, we think a lot about the posting of the 95 Theses next year, the 500th anniversary. But another big, big event, doesn't get as much press, but it's just as important in its own way, happened two years later in 1519 in the city of Leipzig. There was a public disputation, a debate. And... In that debate, Luther encountered a great Catholic theologian named Johannes Eck, E-C-K, Eck. And they were debating back and forth about authority and the tradition of the church and the councils of the church and the decrees of the popes and what could be believed and what could be accounted as an authority in the church and in faith and in doctrine and in belief. And there came a point in the debate where Luther said that He thought church councils could err and had erred. That popes, popes even, could be wrong and had been wrong. That he would take his stand on the basis of the Holy Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. There's that align again. The Scriptures alone. And this established what has come to be called as the formal principle of the Reformation, the supremacy of Scripture over all tradition, over all councils, over every decree, over every human authority, whether it's pope or potentate or pastor or priest, that we make an appeal. And Baptists have done this almost single-mindedly throughout our history. We make an appeal to the written Word of God in Holy Scripture. We are gospel people and we are Bible people. Those are the two marks of an evangelical Christian. John Stott said that. Evangelicals are gospel people and we are Bible people. And this is something we get directly from the work of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And so Luther had come to this insight by reading the Bible. And so he said, everybody ought to be able to read the Bible. Not just learned scholars like me who know Greek and Hebrew and read the Bible in the original languages and study all the commentaries. Everybody. The mother with her kids in the marketplace. The farmer at his plow. The milkmaid at her pail. Whatever profession, whatever work, whatever line of living that you have, The Word of God is for you too. 
And so he began to translate the Bible into his native German tongue. This is what he did in the Wartburg when the devil supposedly threw the inkwell at him. He was translating the scriptures into his native German language. And what Martin Luther did in Germany, in German, very shortly a man named William Tyndale was doing in England in English. The first ever English New Testament translated directly from the Greek was by William Tyndale published in 1526 in the city of Worms, Germany. Published clandestinely because he was involved in an illegal operation and sent back to England as contraband, sent back not as books like this, but as sheets of paper that had been taken apart and shelved in between the different wares that were being sold in England, shipped from Germany to England. Cheese, all kinds of things they were sending back to be sold on the markets. They, in between those different crates, they would have some of the sheets of the English New Testament. And when they got back to the shipping points like Norwich or London or Bristol, there would be people there waiting for those ships which had been marked with a certain code. And they would be identified and they would get those sheets and they would begin to sew them together and sell them to other people and give them away. John Fox, who tells us about this, the great martyrologist John Fox, says he knew a farmer that said, he would be willing to give a load of hay for the book of James. Wow. Just what think he would give for Romans. To give a load of hay for the book of James. Shows you how precious the Bible was when it was first for the first time coming back in the English language to the English speaking people. It's one of the great legacies of the Reformation to us today. You know, that we have the Bible available in our own language, that we can read it. In fact, I almost think we have a glut of Bibles. We have so many Bibles, so many translations, so many versions. You know, hardback, paperback, leatherback, and now you don't even have any back. It's all on the internet, right? Whatever iPhone or whatever iPad you use or uh, what do you call these? Uh, my wife has one of these ta Mac things. Uh, it's all there. It's all there. So much so that I think, I fear sometimes we take it for granted. And that's one of the great lessons that we can learn from the Reformation. The preciousness of the written word of God and the power that it can have in our lives. Okay, I just want to give you two more things and I'm going to open it up for discussion quickly. The church. Luther was a monk and he never intended to start a new church. That's a, that's a myth. We just need to get rid of it. It's not true. It was never Luther's intention to start a brand new church from scratch. To the end of his life, he saw himself as a faithful servant of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But by Catholic, he did not mean Roman Catholic. He meant the universal church. And he wanted to reform that church on the basis of the word of God. That's what he thought needed to be, desperately needed to be done. 
But he believed in the church. But what was the church? There was a word for church in German. It's still the word for church in German today. Kirche. Luther didn't like that word. He invented his own word. His word was Gemeinde. In modern German, they put a D in, Gemeinde. What is Gemeinde? Well, it's the German translation of the New Testament word, Koinonia, which we often translate it into English as fellowship or communion. That which we share in common, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called in his great little book, Life Together. That's, that's Gemeinde. That's the church. It isn't a building. At the end of the day, it isn't a building. It, it isn't officers. It's not a program. It's not a budget. It's none of these things. They all have their place, of course. But the church is the people of God. It's the Gemeinde. It's our life together in Jesus Christ. Called from the world into a covenanted community. And Baptists are big on the covenant, too. Next week, I want to talk a little bit more about how Baptists play into this story of the Reformation. But the covenanted people of God, called out from the world for worship, for praise, for adoration, for prayer, for instruction and teaching, but then sent back into the world for witness, for mission. That twofold process, called out from the world, sent back into the world. That's the church, the people of God, the Gemeinde. That was a fundamental insight of Martin Luther. And I still think, and we'll maybe say more about this next week, that remains one of the big differences still to this day between Catholics and Protestants. Not all Protestants, not all Catholics, but that we define the church ultimately not in institutional terms, but in terms of the living people of God called out by the Spirit of God and then sent back into the world on mission for God. Well, the year was 1521. Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms. And there he was asked to recant what he had written. Had all of his books. He had, was on, already been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. They said, will you recant what you have written? The Pope had sent a legate from Rome. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, he was there. All the princes of Germany was there. Everybody was there. And they asked Martin Luther, will you recant? Will you take back what you have written? And there, in a moment that we remember, it's one of the great panels in all of Western civilization. Luther stood before the legate of the Pope and the emperor and the princes of Germany and all the demons of hell, as he said. And he declared in these words, here I stand, so help me God. Unless I am persuaded by reason and by conscience, I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is captive, captivated to the word of God. Here I stand, so help me God. I can do no other. He said it in Latin, he said it in German. He had no assurance that he would be delivered. No assurance that his life would not end like that of John Hus, who was burned alive at the stake a hundred years before at the Council of Constance in 1415. But he dared to stand with courage based on 
an unfettered, unconstrained conscience. A conscience that was captivated to the Word of God. And so one of the great legacies of the Reformation to us today is the legacy of an unconstrained conscience before God. I was speaking on the Reformation in another city some time ago and a young person there came up to me afterwards and said, these reformers you talk about sound like they were willing to die for what they believed in. I said, yeah, that's true. He looked at me and said, you know, I, I don't think I believe in anything I'd be willing to die for. Do you? Do I? Do we? Do, is there anything? Luther said, and he put it in that hymn that we still sing sometimes, thankfully, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go. Goods is everything you own. Kindred are those that you hold most dear. Let goods and kindred, kindred, go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's, that's a legacy of the Reformation for us today. It's a legacy worth knowing about. Luther died in the same town where he was born. And if you go with us on the Reformation Heritage Tour, I won't say it again, but if you do, we will visit his deathbed. You can still go to the same place where he, where he, was, where he died. And beside his deathbed, there was found scrawled a, a little piece of paper with six words on it, half in Latin, half in German. Versein Petler, Hocus Verum. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. That summarizes, I think, the message of Martin Luther and of the Reformation. As we used to sing in that wonderful hymn, In my hands no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's Luther. That's the gospel of God's justification by faith alone, based on the written word of God alone, Issuing in a life together in Christ. Stemming from an unconstrained conscience before God. Well, Jacob, I think I've said enough. You want to come and take over? And I want to give this wonderful lady her watch back so I don't forget it. We have time for some questions. Uh, I imagine there are plenty. Uh, and we're going to start here, Mr. Pittman. Uh, Timothy. You skipped over the 95 Theses and yeah. the door, which is kind of a big deal. You want to give us a couple of minutes about yeah, that? Yeah, I didn't say much about the door, did I, except in passing. Yeah. Okay, the 95 Theses were points for debate that Martin Luther, Professor Luther, put up on the door. And the door was just a bulletin board. It's the place where people made announcements. And so he said, we want to debate these 95 points about indulgences. Indulgences was the temporal remittance of sin. And uh, one of the big points was that this was in the control of God, not the church. He was disputing the point that the Pope had power to open the doors of purgatory and let everybody out. He said, this is... This is really in the hands of God. Forgiveness is in the hands of God. We often think about Thesis 1 of the 95 Theses. 
Thesis 1 says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He wanted the whole life to be one of repentance. Not a piece of paper you could buy or parchment in the case of Luther. Not a piece of parchment that had on it, you give so much money, you get so much forgiveness. You have somebody, a dead loved one in purgatory, you pay so much money, you can, you can buy them some time out. That's not it. Repentance is turning to God. And it's something that involves your whole life. That's thesis one. But you know, I think the best, the greatest of all of the 95 theses, we don't ever think about it. It's thesis 62. I'm actually right now writing a lecture on thesis 62. Nobody ever talks about thesis 62. And it says this. The true treasure, treasury of the church is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the treasury of merits that the saints have built up in heaven that the Virgin Mary has accumulated by her good works that we can draw on like you would draw on a banking account that was in your name. No, it's the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of God's free forgiveness and salvation. So uh, we remember the 95 Theses because this is what made Luther famous. Uh, they were written as a point for discussion and debate, but remember one thing I also didn't talk about tonight. Maybe next week we'll say more about the printing press. The printing press had just been invented uh, 50 or 60 years ago in, in Germany by a man named Gutenberg. And so as soon as Luther's 95 Theses had been posted, well, they were printed and soon distributed all over Europe. Little circles of, we'd call them Bible study groups, were meeting and they were, this Martin Luther, have you, have you heard his theses? Have you read this? And before you knew it, within a matter of months, really, Martin Luther was a household word all over Europe, all the way from Lisbon and Portugal to Lithuania and near Russia. And that was because of the printing press. And it was the 95 Theses. And that's really how the Reformation became such a big deal so quickly in the 16th century. So thank you very much for Dr. that. Dr. George, you couldn't see behind you, but we had some of those theses listed. And you'll be happy to know you got those two right. I will give you a chance afterwards to get the other 93 correct. Okay. <laughs> Jacob, I, I think I have to take a failing grade from you. You're too good. I, I, uh, I won't report you back. Do we have any other questions for Dr. George? I'm sure there are many. Yes, over here. At the time that you're talking about, did Martin Luther believe in purgatory? I grew up a Catholic, and of course I'm a Baptist now and have been for many years. But back then, did he believe in purgatory? If he, if he was a monk and then a priest, obviously he, he did. did. Was that part of the Reformation of what he's going to change? Yes, and, and, and the 95 Theses, when he published or wrote the 95 Theses in 1517, he still believed in purgatory at that point. Later on, as he came to see the, with clarity the gospel, that we're redeemed by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone... He let go of purgatory. It was one of the many things that he couldn't carry with him going forward. Another one was the invocation of the saints and Mary. He still had a great love and respect for Mary, the mother of Jesus, but he wouldn't pray to her and expect her to do, you know, the miracles and things like that. He let go of some of those, you might say, more medieval Catholic trappings, including purgatory. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I haven't studied this, but I have read in some places that in his later years there were some difficulties with behavior and some of the things he said that maybe contradicted what he had stood for in the past. Um, do you think it was some kind of a dementia kind of thing mm. that was happening with him? Or what? If, if I read correctly, what would be an explanation for those kinds of changes in his later years kind of going back? He was a big, things? ugly sinner. And he never stopped being a sinner. And I, I, I have read a lot of psychological interpretations of Luther, and no, no doubt, you know, he was a very complex person. And maybe there was dementia, maybe there was all these. He, we had a lot of physical problems. We could talk about that. But also, Luther was not perfect. He had warts, moral warts. He said horrible things about the Jewish people. He said horrible things about the Catholic people. He 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 said horrible things about the Anabaptist people. So uh, I don't hold Martin Luther up as a paragon of virtue that we're to imitate in every way. He was a sinner saved by grace, always needing grace and forgiveness. And um, so um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes we, we want to make Luther into Saint Luther. Uh, Luther said we are all at the same time sinful and righteous, both and. And therefore, always in need of God's fresh forgiveness and grace. So I, I tend to attribute this to just his, his sinfulness more, more than to some physical or psychological problem. Though that could well be true as well. Another question. Okay, save those questions that I know you have. And we'll bring them up next week. And we're excited to hear the second part of that lecture. At this time, we're going to go into our table groups or circle up. We're trying to have at least five to ten people at each table. So you guys might want to grab someone or join else. We're going to circle up and we're looking at questions, I believe, 3, 4, 11, 12, and 19. And I'll call us together for a closing prayer uh, in just a few moments. So circle up and uh, begin discussion of these questions. Thank you. All right, friends, let's gather back together. I hope everyone enjoyed tonight. Let's give uh, a show of our appreciation to Dr. George for being here. And, of course, you are invited back to hear a continuation of this conversation uh, next week. we just have just a few moments. Does anybody want to share something that they discussed at their table in response to one of these questions? Or a question that came up on your own that you'd like to share that, uh, that moved you or stirred you? Anyone? That's quite all right. It can just be a secret amongst your tables. I really feel like everyone has bonded close to their tables and doesn't want to talk out of school, and that's okay. Um, I was super encouraged tonight. I hope you were as well. Uh, We have experienced our time of worship, uh, and I was really really moved by that. Uh, So I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you um, interrupt history, that you interrupted history to send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And you continue to reveal yourself through the Holy Spirit, through your church. I thank you for what we've heard tonight and how uh, it reminds us uh, to put our faith in you alone and to to hear from you uh, through the scriptures. I pray that we take that uh, from here today and remember it. Thank you for Dr. George and his 
um, uh, his pursuits and academics and how he is uh, leading and working for your church. Go with us all in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week.